Hello, and welcome to the Teaching in the City podcast series from the Center for Teaching Excellence and Innovation, also called City, at Rush University. Teaching in the City features conversations with faculty and staff on topics related to teaching and learning at one of the nation's leading academic medical centers. My name is Dr. Angela Solik, and I'm the director of City. It has been my own personal mission to help faculty become better educators and leading City helps me on that mission. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in the City. My name is Peg Checky, stepping in for Angela today. I'm an instructional designer with the Center for Teaching Excellence in Innovation here at Rush. And today we're talking with a group of folks from all over the United States about exam proctoring and especially the ethical considerations that surround proctored exams. There's been a lot in the news about that lately. Uh, first, we have Judy Fry from Rush University. We also have Michelle Gribbins from the University of Illinois Springfield and Jarrett Dyer from the College of DuPage and the National College Testing Association. Welcome to all of you. Thanks, Peg. Thank you, Peg. Yeah, thank you. It's oh, a pleasure to be here. Believe me, believe me. Let's um, jump in with question number one. It is common to read about the assumptions around proctored exams, so I would like to take those assumptions and break them down and discuss them individually. For this first one, an assumption is that monitored in-person exams are a necessary part of the university student. What's your response to that statement? I'll be happy to start us off. Um, so my response is it's not necessary, but proctored exams in one form or another may be needed depending on the um, assessments that are selected by the instructor. And one reason why I say that in particular for online courses is that the Higher Education Opportunity Act of 2008 says that we need to validate that the students who are receiving credit for ME classes are the ones that are completing the assessments. And so we need some way to at least validate the students who are completing online exams uh, remotely, that, that, that they are who they say they are. Great. Does anybody else want to pivot or jump in on that? Well, I'll follow up to what Michelle said. Thanks for that, uh, the rule. I wasn't kind of aware of the language of that rule, but in practice, of course, making sure that the students are who they say they are and that are taking the exam that they're supposed to be taking. But I think the pandemic um, sort of showed us that there are alternatives to traditional uh, proctored exams that we did. And over the course of three years, discovered how those uh, alternatives are useful and how they can also be somewhat faulty. Absolutely. And I think you brought up an interesting point, Judy. You know, you weren't aware that there was an actual rule. It, I didn't know that there were actual rules. I taught for years. I mean, mm -hmm. and this is kind of embarrassing to admit on a potentially nationally acclaimed podcast. <laughs> but I taught for years before I even knew that there were actual laws prescribing what we needed to do in in terms of student work. So you are not alone there. And I think it's a huge point to bring up with 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 everybody. Um, did you want to add something in, Jared? Yeah, no, I did. I think this is a great place to kind of to start. I think where there's a little bit of confusion in higher education and in the industry in and of itself. I mean, even here, we're talking about proctoring in kind of this larger umbrella mm -hmm. term. And we all found out through the pandemic and in the beginning of the pandemic, if you recall, we had contracts with third-party proctoring companies, but we found out very quickly that we weren't actually getting proctoring services. And I think that that's led to a larger kind of philosophical question about 
um, what, what is appropriate in different courses with different levels of assessment, right? So at, at the entry level, when there were no humans left to proctor in the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of us were kind of channeled into a more scalable monitoring solution or uh, the other term is record and review. We've kind of settled on the observation of tests without a proctor um, to get kind of the, the lingo going. But with those, it's a balancing act between what a student is able to do during that assessment, and then we don't find out about it until that test, you know, could be already uploaded to a third party server or system um, and what that means for academic integrity in that situation all the way through to live remote proctoring where in essence that's very similar to what we would get in a testing center where the proctor and let me go back the actual definition of proctoring is the ability for a uh, one person to be working with your student one-on-one -on -one or in, in a in, I should say in real time and the ability to intervene right and so that can be if the student has a question, if there's a technical issue, or if we see them inadvertently open up Google in another tab, be like, hey, that's not allowable for this assessment. We can't see that, or we've seen a lot of the, the concerns brought up um, in those fully automated environments with that type of scenario, uh, which we're gonna get to another question. So I'll stop there. Thanks for that. And it's interesting, it's interesting that you note, you know, going to Google, because I've even read reports of students having phones under their desks mm -hmm. or even on their watches now, yep. where they have all their they have a notes app and they just put everything in their note. And I mean it just seems it's crazy how to what lengths people will go to avoid. Um I'd like to chime in there, actually. The I think uh, regardless if something fits the definition of proctoring as Jared has defined mm -hmm. uh, or is a you know review and respond an automated review and respond the purpose of both of those things live or otherwise is to function as a deterrent effect mm -hmm. and the characteristics peg that you just described they're going to happen regardless of what uh, program what we're using, whether or not it's live proctoring or uh, uh, record and respond. So mm -hmm. to me, when I think about these programs, I'm just thinking how effective are they at deterring um, unwanted behavior on the part of students in terms of accessing material? Right. And what's interesting, we as an institution were mainly using live remote proctors up until the pandemic mm -hmm. uh, for our online courses. Um, and what we saw with, as Jared mentioned, some of the challenges with live remote proctoring at the earlier stages of the pandemic, we converted over to those automated proctoring options. And many of our faculty members have not moved back. They found that they were still getting what they were hoping to get from those remote proctors with the mm -hmm. automated tools. A few mm -hmm. have came back to doing the live remote proctoring, but not everybody. And Michelle, when you say live remote proctoring, would you define either uh, what what you mean, what specifically you mean by that? Is that a recording or is there someone real time with real the time. students? Yes, real time with the students can intervene at any time, but they do record it as well. And then we'll audit the recording afterwards and mark any violations of exam rules. And is your understanding that that is uh, that after the fact review that's done by live proctoring is 
an algorithm or is there someone actually looking at the film on the company by the company that you've hired? Because my impression <laughs> without using the name of any companies is that it's described as live proctoring, but the proctors have multiple students at the same time. And when I've seen when I've received flagged results from that, I don't see that the proctor has ever intervened real time. Right. Uh, which makes me believe that it's really an automated uh, evaluation. Can I, can I respond? Yeah. Something up a bit. And so this is one of the things that I think as an industry, we really crack down. And Judy, to your point, I actually, there's, there is a company that um, I actually called out last year simply because one of their services was called live proctoring. Mm -hmm. And they, they termed it that because there was a live launcher. So someone, hey, how are you? Let me look at your ID. And then as soon as the exam started, it was recorded and review. And then the proctor got a notification to come back online and they said, have a good night. Thank you so very much. And they were calling it live. And they have since changed that because the definition of live proctoring is a human going through the entire way. I can tell you on, on a bit of the industry side, um, it doesn't seem given a lot of the complications that have arisen in the last couple of years, most live proctors now appear to be doing true live proctoring without any artificial like running in the background. Um, someone gave me a, a, a good example of one of the reasons, right? Just training any AI model um, takes takes love and care and tenderness and, you know, and, and when a, a student may be in front of a window and it's a cloudy day uh -huh. and they're starting to get a hundred flags because the light's right. going up and down, um, it became very clear that, that the, the human that was watching them was doing um, a decent job and that removing the AI as a distraction. But on the flip side, if it truly is proctored, if, I'm sorry, if it truly is monitored in the actual test session, those AI flags, they're gonna, you're gonna see false positives, you're gonna see false negatives, which is kind of, uh, you know, some of, some of what has brought us to this conversation today and continues the conversation within higher ed. Um, it, it's about the student experience but we also can't really sacrifice the integrity of the exams at the same time. Um, the one, the other thing, oh, Michelle, something that you, you, you brought up and I just wanted to circle back to it. I, I think it's also very important. And one of the things that I talk about is at the institutional level, there needs to be a conversation for the entire campus and then with individual divisions and departments about what's appropriate, right? right. Office, record and review might be great as a deterrent for uh, you know, quizzes and tests and, you know, little, little things. But if you only have a midterm and a final and that's it, those stakes might be higher. You need to have an internal conversation about whether those need to be live proctored, if they need to be live proctored on campus. Uh, and the last thing I'll say, again, Judy, to what you said about the deterrent. Now, there's not a ton of research, but I can tell you, having conducted one of the studies in this particular area, that students do resonate with an institution that states, we take this assessment seriously, mm -hmm. and therefore it's either going to be in a testing center or a proctored environment. It doesn't have to be huge. It can be remotely proctored or it can be um, monitored, but the fact that you're investing those resources in that assessment, mm -hmm. uh, in, in our project, we specifically looked at take home versus proctored, right? So I'll just give you the playing field there. Uh, take home tests were considered to be kind of a joke, right? And so if it was proctored, they understood their faculty member believed in that assessment. And so therefore, they stepped up to the plate a little bit higher. 
I think we can add record and review and every like in that kind of um, that portfolio of, of your communication about the importance of those tests is going to resonate with students. Uh, it's like, eh, whatever, it's worth five points. Chat GPT is going to finish it for them. A hundred percent agree. <laughs> That's really a good point. Yeah. Any thoughts before we move on to the next question? All right, off we go. The second common assumption is that proctored exams are a good imitation of monitored in-person testing. We've kind of touched on that a little bit with the first question, but let's carry it on. And how do you feel about that? What are your thoughts about that second common assumption? I think it really depends on the student um, and the research that I have been doing. And just uh, to preface this, I'm working on a dissertation with Indiana University in Bloomington, and my research is focused on online proctoring, primarily instructors' perceptions of online proctoring and whether or not they want to use it for their courses. And one thing that I have found throughout my research is that for some students, online proctoring is a blessing. It helps them with their test anxiety. It helps them being able to concentrate because they're able to be in home and doing the exam in a setting that's comfortable to them. For other students, it's the opposite. They feel like being watched through a webcam, it actually increases their test anxiety. Uh, some students aren't able to find a quiet space in their home environment to be able to do the exam. Um, back to other students, it may allow them to take an exam at a time where they may not be able to get to a testing center. Um, and we see this happen over and over again with our students. Being able to take an exam at 10 p.m. might work for some of our students who are working professionals and have families, but finding a proctoring center that's open at 10 p.m. is not quite as easy to find. So um, I think it really just depends on the students and uh, what it provides for them in their um, learning. Michelle, I'll follow up with that because I think that's that's huge. And one of the things that's always stuck with me, always thinking about, oh my goodness, you know, we need to have students in testing centers. So I'm a testing center guy. Um, is I, I talked to a colleague who worked in disability services about what happened during the pandemic. And I said, how has remote proctoring worked? And, and the first thing she said was, you know what? Um, I can speak to that from the lack of calls that I had early on when students were suddenly able to test at the time that was appropriate to them, or if they were anxious about coming into the testing center and they were able to test. So I think you're you're absolutely right about the, the student itself. I, I do also want to share um, kind of from my side, again, this is a, a very an area that's also in its infancy as far as research goes, but I've seen two um, two publications that came out uh, one on comparing performance on entry assessments by proctoring modality during the COVID-19 pandemic by, by Dr. James, another one, the online remote proctor delivery of high stakes tests, issues and research uh, by John Weiner from PSI and Diane Henderson at ACT. And both, I was really impressed with the second, I think their end value is something like 14,000 um, tests that they had looked at in a comparability study versus now, and I wanna be very clear because this is where the research all gets a little wonky live remote proctoring versus proctored test centers, okay? So those two. Um, and the comparability was, was pretty much spot on as far as uh, performance on those assessments in the two. Um, where where I, I do struggle really, and I'm, I'm sure, Michelle, <laughs> you're running into the same things. If you really get into the methodology uh, and the modality of a lot of these, the methodology, when they start talking about modalities, I, 
in a lot of the publications, it's it's not always clear whether they're talking about record and review, uh -huh. live proctoring. And I've actually even seen some some very well written papers that are comparing apples to oranges. And I'm mm -hmm. like, we, we can't do this because, um, for frankly, they're they're different modalities. So. Mm -hmm. So it sounds as though it would be helpful if there was some sort of, um, uh, even if we just had some concrete language to use so that we were all using the same <laughs> terminology, overarching. The so, Peg, if I might, Jude, I don't want to jump in on, on your turn here. I am going to put a plug because the National College Testing Association did come out with a definitional uh, paper last year um, that looks at the difference between proctoring, monitoring, online proctoring, and what is uh, the, the term that was settled on after a lengthy time, assisted online or assisted in person, assistant being any type of technology that assists uh, the, the, the process. So I can, I'll be happy to send that out, but that is there. Um, and additional definition should be coming out with the standards later this year. That would be great if you would send those links to us. That would be fabulous. We can include them in the in the write up for the podcast, and people can take a look at them. Like I said, when this goes internationally famous, <laughs> viral. It goes viral. Viral. Yes. <laughs> so let's move on to question three, so we don't run out of time. A third common assumption is that proctored exams are an ethical alternative to in-person testing. A lot is written about the ethics of proctored exams, and this is a very hot topic. I'm curious about your stance on that. Uh, I'd like to take a little bit of a uh, try at that one. Um, I struggle with use of the word ethics and morals when we're talking about testing. And don't get me wrong, I do not think that students should uh, that I think the test should reflect the student's knowledge, not uh, it, which is inside their head, not knowledge that they've gained by other means. But I often find that when students make a what I call a bad choice, a choice to use material that they are not supposed to use during testing, that it is simply a bad choice made under highly stressful situations. And that it doesn't mean that the student is a bad person, uh, perhaps for that moment, but not forever, a person who is ethically and morally challenged. And very often that's what I hear. So in nursing, it's, you know, if you were to cheat on a test, it means you cannot be a moral or ethical person. And I frankly just don't buy that. I think it's a bad choice at a bad time. And so to me, the deterrent uh, effect of any type of either record, recording, uh, distant proctoring, live in-person testing, those all function the same across those, but I like to keep the whole ethical and moral discussion out of it. To me, it's way too judgmental. It's interesting you said that. So with the re my dissertation research that I'm doing, um, it was a quantitative study, but I did have one open-ended question where uh, the faculty members that I was surveying about their willingness to use online proctoring were asked if uh, they had anything else they wanted to share. And of those, I had 126 faculty members fill out that question. And of those, at least a, almost a fourth of them had issues related to the ethics of online proctoring. So they were 
concerned about the privacy of it, the social implications of it. So even if uh, we don't look at ethics as, uh, or online proctoring as an ethical issue, our faculty members, many times the ones who are deciding whether or not to use our online proctoring are using uh, ethics as one of their considerations. So I, I would say that, that what you're raising are the legal implications of it. And that's the court case that I referred to and Jared referred to out of Ohio, that there's a privacy issue when you're recording in someone's personal space. Totally understand that. I, I'm, I guess I'm talking about the niche of a student who makes a bad decision under some sort of proctoring exam and what our response is to that. So, I, Judy, I think I'd, I'd probably agree. And I think this is a very interesting case of Michelle looking at, um, you know, from the faculty side. And so, so what I just put in the chat, uh, we looked actually from the student side, our paper. Um, was looking specifically at academic dishonesty and testing, how student beliefs and test settings impact their decisions to cheat. And I, being a glutton for punishment, did the same thing um, and opened up the, the student responses. And they were all very like what you had said. I consider myself an ethical person. However, um, you know, in our society today, this is one of the quotes, grades are more important than knowledge. We all must compete with this. And so in order to keep up, some of us resort to cheating. And they had a some, uh, like a general theme that mm -hmm. in essence, so many people are doing it. If you look at the research, they're, they're you know, fundamentally they're backed up by that. Um, and so we don't want to, but the way that we're being forced with all of these social sharing sites, like if you don't have a subscription, um, to to the answers already online and you're actually trying to study, I just don't know what to do, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of like the feeling we get. The other kids in the class, they, they're signing on to these websites, they're getting all, you know, the test questions for free or they're using chat GPT, help, yeah. um, I cheat. So I'm yeah. not a bad person. Um, and, and so some of what, you know, talking about here, providing a online professional experience in order for them to take an assessment when it's deemed that an assessment is a, the appropriate tool, mm -hmm. put some of those guardrails up, mm -hmm. right? It simply says, we're taking this seriously, don't sure. use your phone, and we're doing it for everyone in your class, so you right. don't think you have to be uh, you know, disadvantaged by um, them looking at Google while they're taking the test and you're not, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I don't get me wrong. I, I, I think that there are consequences to that there should be consequences to um, students using information that they're not allowed to during an exam. Uh, but I just I, 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 I run away from that. It's predictive of someone having bad character. Right? To me, it's you know, students make a bad choice at a moment in time when they're highly stressed. If I may just I wanted to add something else because what had actually come to our mind as well when we're talking about um, again, moving away from the word, the ethical nature of it, but I, I want to be clear coming out of, you know, uh, Ogletree and Cleveland State that it, it is very important. I, I saw one, I believe, comment that just everybody needs to take the test the same way. And while I don't disagree with that, I think it's also very important that there's informed consent. And so if, if students are in an online environment and the assessment is delivered through a remotely proctored um, service of some situation and they're completely uncomfortable with that it's just not a no right there right. should be some level of informed consent that they can make an option if they feel their privacy is a violation and also uh, legally we now see it, it's, it's it's at the protection of the university 
as well. But before before even this case, right, there just needed to be a way that if you weren't comfortable or you weren't able to, you know, you have eight brothers and sisters and you're not able to, you know, have a, a to take a test in a, in a suitable environment at home, then what are the options? However, they really should come out at the university's discretion, in my opinion. Right. Okay, so you don't want to take this through our third-party company, but that means you're either at the testing center or an approved national proctoring center through like uh, NCTA's proctoring network. You don't get to decide that you're going to have your brother test you at home. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> right. Some guardrails. I think you use the choice goes uphill in your response yes. to one of those questions, which I kind of like that. I, I like that phrase. Um, so I, I, I'm going to respond to something that Michelle said, and I think that Jared, you alluded to. So, you know, I think I was the one that said, you know, you have to be consistent. And I would argue again that that is the case. So let me just, you know, from a practical point of view, um, I appreciate that it's easier for some students to take exams at 10 p.m. at night and other students to take them at different times. But there is a burden on faculty when you have students taking exams at all different times of the day. There are also, of course, security concerns in terms of discussions from students who take early to take late. So I, I'm a little bit careful about that. I'm a little bit stricter about that than a lot of other people. I don't, my, my exams are open for a very short period of time for students to take them. And if my class has gone back to a live setting, which we have, so I'm truly doing proctoring, I did this morning, and students don't take the exam, I don't give them the option of saying you can do a remote proctored or a record exam later on during the week. What I say, and I tell you, this is very practical. There aren't enough hours in the day for me to deal with the number of call-offs that I have. I say the retake exam is on Friday afternoon. It starts at 2, it ends at 3.30, and it's on campus, just like it was for the students who took the exam live. Uh, and so it, so it, it meets that. And I, I think, you know, Jared, where you talked about, we have to take this seriously and convey that to students. That's mm -hmm. the same thing that I'm trying to say, I take this seriously and this is where I expect you to be. And when I expect you to be there so that every student has had the same experience. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And I think that goes back to a point that was made earlier in that this is something that department should talk about, programs should talk about, universities should talk about, because a lot of this depends on who our students are. So mm -hmm. and at my institution, for our online programs, asking all of our students to be online at 6 p.m. Right. to 8 p.m. to take an exam would Impossible. not work. Impossible. I agree. students across the right. United States. Right. Um, the, one of the main reasons why I started looking at online proctoring as a solution for our institution in the first place was when I was a full-time faculty member, I had a student who was a physician, and she was going back to get a um, master's in business administration. And at that time, I was asking my students to uh, go to a local proctoring center to take their exams. It was an online class. And she had a very busy work schedule because of her uh, career. She ended up, and she told me this after the fact, she ended up having to travel six hours to a proctoring center on a Saturday because she couldn't find any that worked with her schedule. Mm. Six hours, that's that that made me sad once I heard about that. That's mm -hmm. that's not in the student's best interest at all. And so having a little bit of flexibility and understanding who our students are and how we can serve their needs is crucial. And mm -hmm. that should be a decision made by programs, departments, faculty, institutions. Right. I was speaking from the perspective of a program that's on campus. Yeah. 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 
Well, I think that's a very good point. I, I think for the listeners, it, it's very important, again, to have those conversations, but also to articulate in what we know now, that if this is a fully remote uh, environment, then flexibility is needed in because of the privacy, because of the equity concerns. If the exam is only offered from 10 to 11 through a third-party remote proctoring solution, and a student comes back and says, is there a way that I can take it on campus? Those options really do need to be able to be offered and, and leveraged appropriately. Nope, I agree. Uh, could I also do a little bit of a plug for <laughs> the, record, the record and review uh, sure. process? So, um, you know, in other aspects of this course um, or of courses that I teach, I use a record and review uh, program. I'm sure all of you know which one it is. I think it's the most common one <laughs> that's around. And I tell you, there are advantages to that program because I go and spot check the recordings and I hear students reading aloud, which is something they can't do when they're in a live proctoring center. And that, you know, sort of audio uh, approach to reading a question, I think can help some students understand. You know, and I'll say, stop and say, wait a second, that's not the right word. Let me think about it. And sometimes, it, sometimes I'll have students say, Hey, Judy, if you're listening, I just want you to know this is what I was thinking about, which I was going to laugh when I hear, when I, when I hear that. So uh, there are some distinct advantages to some of those programs. Um, so question five is, besides privacy, there's also a debate on the equity issues of proctored exams, such as the color of a student's skin affecting the accuracy of the exam software. Uh, students' chosen names might not match the data in the system, and how software software defines normal body behavior. Um, so again, you've kind of touched on these things, but do you have? Can you give us additional thoughts on those concerns? Yeah, I'm going to start with this one just because I want to clarify the question, right? And so I did send out that definitional document just for the 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 case of the listeners. Um, really, all of these concerns are issues that we've all struggled with and we've struggled with in, uh, in uh, record and review scenarios or monitored scenarios where the artificial intelligence is posting flags in the recording of issues that they've seen. And we do know that's one of the areas that we do struggle with. There's some, um, there's actually a, a number of publications now that have shown some of the bias issues in the, in the algorithm and the artificial intelligence um, and some of the issues with not only body behavior, but also with weather, with lighting, with other things that do trigger, you know, we are training these systems and we're not, you know, sometimes you have to see something to understand how it interacts that way. Um, in a live remote proctoring scenario, um, most of these issues would not present themselves because they'd be handled during the test. The, the issue with the names uh, is often a, a complicated one, which is why um, I think the idea of nudges, working with your students before, that if they have a given name or if they have a nickname and they're using it on their ID to make sure that they're signing up that way. Um, but I think you know making sure that we, we separate out the two is important for the rest of this, this conversation. Great, any other thoughts on that one? Um, I, uh, uh, what did I say here? I think I have a very high bar for, uh, 
following up with a student uh, who has a flag in a automated program. Uh, so I am always going to look at those flags before I follow up. And in my experience, those flags are not particularly accurate. There are tons of false positives with the flags. And, you know, and, you know, once you make an accusation like that, that is almost impossible to recover from for the student and for the relationship that the student has for a faculty. So I would have to see behavior that is so egregious uh, that I think anyone would look at it and say that's a problem. Uh, so I am, um, and, and when I am proctoring live in person, it's the same way. You know, if I see behavior, I'll go over and nudge a little bit, but it's rare that I'm going to bring a student in and say, this is what I saw. This is what I think you were doing. Here are the consequences of it. Because I think those are nearly impossible to improve, to uh, prove. Uh, and it creates uh, an incredibly negative experience for the students. And, you know, uh, Jared, I would be interested in seeing some of the research on how those automated programs uh, look at color of skin mm -hmm. and make determinations based on color of skin, because that's certainly a pattern that I have noticed mm -hmm. in the flags that come up through the automated program that I've used in the past. Well, I think another important point, too, is the... Um... The idea that if if something happens with one student it cascades throughout the student body correct right? and so there's another there's yet another application of thought here because it's not just one student it's the whole program that's at risk it's the whole university that's at, that's suddenly mm -hmm. got this issue that's bubbling under the surface and creating a um a frustrating environment for the students so mm -hmm. yeah it's a big deal if it's mm -hmm. definitely a big deal mm -hmm. I, I think if the decision is made by the institution to use any of these services, even a testing center, um, right, with live proctoring in a testing center, then, then really a more holistic conversation about what to look for, what to not, right? One, one particular case we can kind of zoom in on is what to do if in, our, in a monitored session, if the student can't pass the initial scan and their ID doesn't scan, do you stop the exam and wait for the following day? 99% um, of the faculty that I've talked to and the administrators I've talked to said absolutely not. So then you can work with the company to remove some of those um, flags, but then on the other end, if nothing really gets flagged, then the faculty member needs to spend more time just reviewing the tape mm -hmm. itself, which Judy, I'm with you. Uh, we, we, the majority of our faculty are using record and review currently, and I think we've had some great success with it. Um, my team in the testing center often co-edits or co-audits some of those mm -hmm. faculty, and I find that we spend just as much time on the flags as the spaces in between the flags. Mm -hmm. And it, it kind of comes back to when proctoring in person, you get a get a gut sense, right? You know, proctoring is a profession. You have lots of professional development for it. You get a sense for when a student is, I like to call it the test fraud initiation moment or the <laughs> moment. You kind of go up and you check out where the proctor is and then out comes the notes. Um, but you kind of get the same kind of sense, right? Online, like this student's just talking to themselves. This is, this is great. This is for their learning style. They're doing the best. And what works best for them, as opposed to 
you know, where you can clearly see half of another person sitting next to them and they're whispering. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, as with in-person, online, it, it's improved to kind of understand really all the nuances that go into it and have those conversations, you know, campus-wide. Agreed. I'm going to take that to my grave, the meerkat moment. I don't, that's that's a great image. <laughs> uh, okay, our last question. In this final question, are there reasonable alternatives to proctored exams that faculty members can investigate to perhaps reduce issues that surround this type of examination process? I think a lot of our disciplines that are moving away from exams have turned to those authentic assessment type of activities. So more projects-based assignments, um, papers. Uh, but as we're seeing in the last mm -hmm. couple of months with chat GTP yeah. chat yeah. and other generative AI technologies, those are now also growing in concern with regards to the originality of those. Right. And we've had tools for years that help us flag uh, plagiarize content, right. but they're not quite there yet to catch all of the those um, generative um, content. That's the next podcast, everybody. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd like to share something, and it's a great quote. It's not mine. It actually comes from uh, Dr. Sarah Reeder Bennett, the current president of, of NCTA. But I think she nailed it when she says, tests may or may not be the most appropriate tool to assess uh, learning depending on intent, like the ability to write essays, but we know in the absent of absence of oversight, authentic assessment isn't necessarily authentic. If someone can turn in an essay without any proof that they wrote it, um, it isn't better than a proctored assessment. In fact, with the uptick in ways in which someone can cheat, either through essay mills, uh, having somebody write something for them, or AI, we probably should be moving toward more proctored assessments like essays written under observation. Yeah. And wouldn't that cause some distress among the students? <laughs> Absolutely. So, so I, since November, I, let me just share too that I think our, our, a number of faculty have just come up and been like, I don't know what to do. I can't detect this in writing. Uh, and one of the questions was, can we use the testing center to have them write? And that's been a very, um, seesaw kind of conversation, right? There's some strong, like, I'm going to have everyone come to the testing center. And to the other, my students aren't going to be able to write with the anxiety that a time limit in the testing center would require. And unfortunately, not open 24 hours a day. So I'm glad you mentioned that, Peg, because I think that's a great conversation for another podcast as to what to do then um, with, with this. We certainly don't want to you know, have everyone locked in a solitary confinement. <laughs> you know, I, I think, um, yeah, again, I think we're all coming back at this from our, you know, the, the institution in which we teach uh, and the programs in which we teach. Um, I love the idea of uh, creative, I'm going to use the word creative assessments, you know, not the multiple choice questions. And I give those a thousand times. I think nobody thinks in multiple choice. Uh, but the fact of the matter is I have classes with between 70 and 100 students in them. 
And so there aren't enough hours in the day for me to do the more creative, uh, authentic, uh, as you said, Jared, assessments that I would love to do. Uh, so I think also, and this would be for anybody who's listening to this, we also have to think practically, are there enough hours in the day for me to do what I know I should do versus what I can do? Uh, because oftentimes I think we find ourselves working so hard um, that, that uh, you know, we can't be creative about our own teaching and, and instruction to students because you're scrambling uh, trying to get these other things done. So I just, you know, a, a favorite architectural phrase of mine for postmodernism or modern architecture is less is more. <laughs> So I'll leave it with that little pithy phrase. <laughs> Other thoughts before we move on? No, but I will add this leveraging this for the, your next podcast. Because I had a faculty member um, that stopped by less than 30 minutes ago. And the conversation was around how, you know, AI potentially adding more work and i said well it'd be interesting what if you what if you reverse that how could you use ai and we're not going to get into the ethics of it in this podcast we'll do for the next but what if some of those uh, redundant tasks that you do as a faculty member ai could fill those in so you could add your personality back into the classroom to do more for the students Wow, what a great note to end on. I yeah. mean, seriously, that is a, that's a really good paradigm shift and something that deserves a lot more conversation for for this group or for some other group. So um, I, I, I'm eager to we're doing um, we're doing some research now. Our department is doing some research now and we're going to be doing some fat work with the faculty about Ch chat GPT and other AIs and uh, there's just a lot to talk about because it's not going to go back. The genie is not going back in the bottle at this point. Mm. So yeah, it's definitely food for thought for sure. Mm -hmm. um, does anybody want to offer any more thoughts? No, or thank you for the opportunity to share our ideas and perspectives. Yeah, no, this was a fabulous, um, fabulous group of people, very different perspectives and a really interesting um, uh, conversation. I can't, can't thank you guys enough for joining us. And uh, we'll be sure to send you a link when the edits are all made and it's all put together. So Michelle and Jared, it's great meeting you. And you as well. Thank you all. Thank you for joining us for Teaching in the City. This podcast is produced by the Center for Teaching Excellence and Innovation at Rush University. To learn more about City and to find additional resources and events on teaching and learning at Rush, Search for CTEI Rush in your web browser or find us on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts.